everybody. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And today, with our guest, Aisha Brooks-Lytle, we are taking an NBA All-Star Weekend look at one of the great, sometimes forgotten basketball movies, Gina Prince-Bythewood's 2000 Love and Basketball. And I will ask Aisha and Adam, what can love and basketball teach us about life and ministry, theology, and in the world? In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with love and basketball for this upcoming Sunday, which will be the seventh Sunday in Epiphany, year C, February 24th. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading or watching or following. But before we get too far, let me introduce friend of the show, Aisha Brooks-Lytle. Aisha is the executive presbyter of the Greater Atlanta Presbytery. And I like to think of her as the Presbyterian world's Kevin Bacon. Everyone is always six degrees of separation from Aisha. I meet people I've never met before, and and I'll say, like, well, do you know Aisha? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Aisha. And so she is one of those great hubs and, um, and connectors within the church. Aisha, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, shout out to the Presbyterian of Greater Atlanta, who um, allows me the freedom to hang out with cool people like y'all. Um, this is such a fun um, topic, but I do have a disclaimer. Um, although I am tall, I <laughs> um, have never really been a basketball person. In fact, truth be told, um, when I was probably about like 11 or 12, my mom made me take basketball lessons. So I know that like certain form type things, but I was a little chunky. And so I never wanted to be the chunky tomboy. Um, <laughs> and so I did like, I just did, wasn't my thing, but uh, anything with the, you know, late nineties to early two thousands that has to do with love and R and D and being black and fabulous or just the struggle of a black coming of age. So uh, captures my attention. So um, for me, this movie was like a dramatic uh, Cosby show, different combination. So I'm super excited to talk about it because uh, it brings back a lot of good memories. Awesome. So over the weekend, Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors was doing a bit of pre-All-Star Game press conference and somebody asked him what his favorite basketball movie is and his answer was not Hoosiers or Hoop Dreams or Coach Carter, but instead this movie, uh, 2000's Love and Basketball, a movie that is about the game and also about the love, the love between Quincy, played by Omar Epps, and Monica, played by Sana Lathan, as they go from being high school frenemies to college classmates and beyond, all while both pursuing their dreams of playing professional hoops. This is a sports movie that ends up with one climactic game, but it's not the state championship. It's a midnight game of one-on-one played for the heart. No wonder Steph admitted that he's also kind of a romantic This does tend to be one of those kind of overlooked gems. Maybe it's got too much sports to be a romance or too much romance to be a sports movie. Aisha, I'm wondering whether it worked for you this time around. And as you watched it, as you revisited it, where did your imagination start to go? I mean, I think I was was watching it looking for, like, theologically, what could I pull from it? And for me, the love part is always bigger than the basketball, right? And so this idea of who do you love? What's your passion? Who are you drawn to? What are you drawn to? How does your passion or call or vocation or, you know, imagining basketball as a vocation or a call, 
right? Right. Their gifts are in that way. And then how is it tied up with who you are drawn to that you sometimes don't have any control over? So I think what was fascinating for me, if I'm looking at it, how the love, again, love is bigger than basketball, um, how they start off and how they go in and out of, of this closeness and pull away, this closeness and pull away. And they've always just been right there for each other the whole time. Um, if you notice, there's probably about at least three or four scenes where they are tussling in the grass. You right. know, it's like yeah. from first kiss to fighting to tussling. There's something about, there's something grounded in this relationship mm, between mm-hmm. the two of them. That it's almost like there is this love or this fate that was beyond their control, right? Moving the next door to each other, your bedroom windows are side by side. When you have a bad day, you don't even have to say anything. You just look, she opens the window, and you come and lay down and sleep because whatever's going on in your house is that bad. That is like some kind of deep ancestors bringing them together. Like that's some kind of like out there esoteric love story with the two of them that almost, it almost feels like it predates them if you look at this energy between the two of them. Like they don't have a choice in their love for each other, but you also could say they don't really have a choice in whatever this thing around basketball is for the both of them. So in a lot of ways, watching that is sort of like watching two alpha, an alpha male and an alpha female fall in love and they're kind of a lot of mirroring of their, of their personality and energies and stuff. So I just, you know, again, I'm old, right? So I've been married, widowed, in a relationship now. So like my whole brain and looking at this is probably very different than when I saw it in the early 2000s. Yeah. And well, I think you're right that it's probably more a love story than a basketball story. That said, basketball is such this perfect vehicle for telling this story, right? Because it's, I was thinking about this last night, which is, um, what other sport can you play one-on-one, right? You can play tennis, but you're <laughs> divided. You play racket sports, but you're always divided. It, it, it doesn't require contact. And that's the thing that was really interesting to me watching this movie again, which is the, all of the small ways in which they're physical with each other. And, yeah. and they're very tender, whether it's um, actual sex that they're having or like like rolling around the grass or like punching each other or like like or bodying up each other to play defense or like yeah. that, that last scene. There's a couple of moments where like there's like elbows and shoulders that are like pressed into each other. And it's. And it's just a very physical type of um, game, right? Yeah. You have to hit bodies. And there's no other game where you can play one-on-one like that. I you, know, you can't do that in soccer. You can't do that in football. You can't do that in baseball. And I think it's in part because, all right, this is my my love for basketball. This is because basketball doesn't actually have positions. It has roles, right? You mm. have to be everywhere all the time. You have to learn how to, how to like live in different parts of the court. Um, in other games, there are, there are positions and those positions have very specific roles that no one else can do on the quarter field, but in basketball, everybody has to shoot, everybody has to pass, everybody has to dribble. Um, but it, so it means that you can play a game of one-on-one and that becomes a wonderful sort of medium by which to talk about relationships. Yeah. I mean, this happens in other movies too. I think he got game is the same way. It's just a father and a son having that, that kind of conversation. Um, they're having that that struggle, but in this movie, it takes 
that struggle and puts it into a very tender relationship. And, and in that way, I think the, the choice of basketball is the medium to talk not just about dreams, but about how a relationship interacts worked really well for me because it just yeah. seemed to, it seems it's, it's obvious that Gina Prince Bythewood loves basketball too. Mm. She, she understands this game and what it costs and what it, when it asks of people. And yeah. that I think rings really true and honest. So she seems to, she gets the relational, she gets the love side and she gets the basketball side, which is a, I think a real testament to the power of this movie. I'm really curious to follow up on this question about vocation and the thing that we are called to do as Aisha, you began kind of pointing us in that direction. Uh, it, it's clear to me, I, I, I see this, that question so clearly through Monica's character as someone who, uh, as, as, as Q says at some point, like, she, she she loves to play ball more than anyone he's ever met. And she feels so mm. such a specifically articulated call to be the first woman in the NBA, which then ends up obviously playing pro ball in different contexts. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm never entirely sure what Quincy wants. And I would love for you all to help me understand that. I mean, I, 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 I enjoy this movie a lot. I liked it a lot. Um, but there are places with it that I'm still trying to unpack. What, what, is, what, is, what does he want? And how does that grow and change and, and develop over the course of the film? If I'm thinking about it in the convocation piece, right? Yeah. To me, to me, Monica would be like the church planter. Right, who, came, who, who didn't who didn't go to Sunday school, who didn't um, come up in the church, but had an encounter with Christ, like a, like a like a Paul kind of thing, right? Like I am on fire for this thing that I did not know, and now I know it, right? And so, or I've come in contact with it, or just his passion for it, right? And I think that Q's character is sort of like the son of the mega church pastor who is sort of expected to just carry on the legacy of ministry. So his dad played pro ball. He's got all the accoutrements, all the statues. It's just expected. And he definitely has this natural gifting for it. But the question of, is this, is this you? Or is this because this connection to your dad, who you feel disconnected to? Again, this is one big family systems movie, movie for me. Um, so I, I think that he's confused, right? So that I want to, I want to be like my dad. I want to connect with him. I want to be as close to him as possible. So you've got this natural gifting for basketball. He's clearly good at it, right? But the fire behind it, it does not match Monica's. He's good. He's great, but it's not the same kind of fire. And I just, I'm not sure that I feel like there's something going on with him and the dad. Because notice how his game is off when he finds out his father's cheating. Like his whole, it's probably enmeshed. His love for mm-hmm. basketball and trying to be be like his dad or emulate someone who was never going to be perfect, unfortunately, I think was all tied together. For her, it was I am into basketball. Actually, I think that's a really astute comment. The what was interesting to me about Quincy's journey is that, like you said, he he has this model of what to do, and the path has been laid for him so that he can see how to get there. He's just not sure if he really wants what's at the end of the path. Mm. Whereas Monica is the opposite. She she 
knows what she wants at the end of the path. She just doesn't know how to get there. And there are times where that she has to compromise, right? She she doesn't know if 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 she should hang out with Quincy and listen to him in the in his pain, or does she have to go make curfew? And it leads to all of these decisions, right? right? So there are all of these difficult decisions, which is like I I don't know what the right decision here is. I just know that there's the end, and I and I I need to embrace the end. And I think we should talk at some point about what happens when she finally gets to the end and does play pro basketball and what that what that means. But it's it's interesting to me that between the two of them, they they have this inverted relationship with about their dreams, and and I think mm-hmm. that. With with respect to to Monica, she has all of these obstacles. One of which is her is just her family, and that can't seem to understand why this is so important to her. And there's this moment in the movie where they get the grandmother's pearls and put her on, put them on her for so that she can go to um, the prom or to some some dance. And the the mother says something like, "You know, I uh, I want you to enjoy being beautiful." It's something that I think as parents, we all kind of want. We want people to have this sort of recognition of their own beauty, whether it's external and, and internal. But at the same time, it seems to misunderstand what she wants, which is she enjoys playing basketball and she wants other people to enjoy her enjoying playing basketball. And that never seems to happen for her. And I mean, to your point, as a family systems movie. It's really interesting to see how that mother plays a role in her trying to make sense of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a basketball player, and what it means to be in a relationship with someone who is also full of dreams. That that whole scene, that whole mom, oh, this is such a prototype, right? Like, just if you, t- if you catch all those Black classism cues, number one, that there are pearls to hand down from your grandmother. Check, black middle class at its best. (laughs) Number two, the boyfriend or the guy who's the date is a college guy, right? That's setting it, that's trying to set her up for like black excellence. Number three, mom doesn't have to work. She's home making piles from scratch while other mothers are working two or three jobs in Crenshaw. You know, like, where are these, who are these people (laughs) that they're living in this way? And the money, whatever money they have does not come out of any kind of black celebrity, anything. Think about it. Q's parents move, you know, are in this neighborhood because he used to play professional ball. They move in because her dad has some unknown desk job. Like he's just- A banker at some point, right? A banker or something, right? Or something, whatever. So you just, you have this whole kind of like her mother's desire for a continuation of black excellence. Like if you had that ad, you guys just, when I look at her mom, you gotta do the whole backstory. So her mother just, or imagine what her, I don't think her mother understands that you can be fabulous and beautiful and wear the snatch back braids and then take it out and throw some pearls for the dance and then pull it up in a ponytail to run ball. Like her mother has no concept of black alpha female femininity having a boyfriend. She has no concept. So that's the other thing too, is that her daughter's cutting her teeth on an identity that is not popularized at this time. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So I don't, I don't see the mom so much. I see her coming from a place of love, but in the sense of like, when we see that when my Korean brothers and sisters talk about, you know, first generation and 1.5 and second generation. And so it seems to be they're caught in this generational half step and her mom just really doesn't get it. Her mother does show up at the very end and kind of prompt the the relationship back into existence. I mean, it's her her mom who does kind of whisper into her ear and say, "You've you've always been a fighter," uh, and 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 kind of is the is the whisperer that sends her out to challenge for that that game of one on one. And I, and I'm not sure whether to take that as as not so much a, a, a redemption of her, but kind of a moment of grace with her, but also. This is the arena in which mom is allowed to operate. It was within that romantic love arena and not within the professional ambition of the basketball itself. Uh, so it, it's, it, it, it still seems confined no matter what. One of the ways in which I thought the, 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 the kind of class issue showed up is that it, it, it still it goes back to this question around um, vocation and ambition, uh, which is so strikingly different here than... It, it is in, 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 in so many sports movies and particularly basketball movies that take uh, the game as the way of achieving class mobility, uh, where you are playing to get out of some situation and you have that economic driver behind you. Uh, here, it's almost inverted. I mean, these, these kids have, you know, Q's option is Princeton, right? He has no, he has, he has no economic push to go and play pro ball. It's, it's not, we hear nothing about that. And so totally it, it, like what we end up with is a question about ambition and vocation that is totally removed from economic indicators, which uh, may be the privilege of making a movie in the late nineties. I'm not sure, but it, it does. It it, 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 it seems liberating and also, and, and, and also doesn't ring entirely true for me, uh, regardless. Well, I think I think that in black cinema, part of the reason why people make have made those movies and continue to make those movies is that white America does not know. They just don't know the other stories. And that story is clearly another story. It's the Kobe Bryant. It's the like there are other stories out there where people come from some wealth or they come from some class privilege or they come from, you know, families who have some legacy. And so most majority America, they don't know the stories of black folk on that level. So what I loved about this movie was that you're telling the other stories and they, and, and they exist. It's just that those people are so busy living their best lives that they don't have to go shout it from the rooftops. Well, and I think that's that's what makes this movie so interesting is that so you have a woman, a black woman director and writer who is going to tell a story that is not generally what Hollywood buys with respect to questions of race, because questions of race in this movie are there. They're present. They exist. The ways in which people are formed. I mean, in talking about the mom and and the the legacies and the traditions that that have formed her and that she has received are are born of race in this country. But it's it's not it's not a moment where racism is <clears throat> is front and center as a driver of plot or story. I mean, so we were, I was watching this with my wife and she said, um, 
I, I thought when Q and Monica were driving home from the basketball game, they were going to get stopped. Wow. She said, that's my assumption, because that's the trope, right? That That is the movie right. trope that you that always happens, right? Is that there is this moment where, um, you know, the police show up. Where there is this moment where you there, the economic has to like put someone in a position where the 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 black protagonist has to decide, am I going to go and commit a crime or am I going to go and follow my dream? Right. Those tropes are utterly absent from this movie. And because there's because there's there are more stories. Right. And I think that's the uh, incredible part about this movie is that she's like, look, I'm going to tell this story. Yeah, And there's not an assumption that that's the end of the story or that's the sum total of the story. But it's like, look, this is a story that happens and it's one that I've seen. And, you know, in my own experience, like I played basketball in the 90s. I played um, and the team that I had was really integrated with white and black and Latino for, the, for that matter. Um, and there were upper class black kids that were really good. And there were some from the other side of the neighborhood with, um, who were poor. And we were all together. And we all shared this, this culture in this very strange way. I mean, so there's a moment in the movie that, is sort of, that felt too real to me, which is when Monica comes over to Quincy's dorm apartment. And there are two white dudes sitting on the couch playing video games while he's ironing his T-shirts. And I was like, I've been there. I've been the white dude on the couch. I was that white guy. That's me. <laughs> I was like playing video, playing double dribble on the. I was like, that's. I've done that. Yes. Um, and then to see and seeing like some relational stuff happen in front of me and be like, I ain't gonna. I know. I ain't gonna touch that. <laughs> and so you know, like this is this movie is not my experience, but there is all of these ways in which there is a sort of white adjacent human being in in yeah. this story this is this is almost an entirely black cast um it's it's, it's except so, uh, for like I, these little these little these little folks here and there right and, and the one white and the one white coach and the one white give coach. you a hard time because they see you yeah say, oh white coach i thought you were hating on me but you really <laughs> love me okay white coach I, and that white coach could be like your orchestra director right it could be your russian studies teacher it's like oh white coach thought you was hating on me but you really love me okay so it's great you know so yeah so it it, this movie has so many those little beautiful details that just seem to it seems to understand like what basketball was like like what what that culture is like yeah the white the coach the coach figure but also i mean i was so impressed that every time the women are in the locker room they're talking about themselves. They're talking about their experience. They're talking about all of the things that are important to being a team. They're not talking about Quincy. Quincy almost never shows up in that locker room. And that's a that's a fascinating move for Gina Prince Bythewood to make, which is to say this is about the team. They don't they are their own internal cohesive unit that have conversations themselves. All right, Adam. I am I am Curious, given your uh, your your history as a guy in the '90s playing basketball and a guy who has seen a substantial number of basketball movies, and and yes. Aisha, feel free yes. to correct him at any moment. Uh, yes. I'm I'm sure. curious where Love and Basketball sits in in your 
uh, your echelon of of basketball movies. Okay, so it's it's probably four for me because I well nineties basketball movies really get me. I, that's like when I was. Is it I the was, soundtrack? That's what it's. Well, the soundtracks is like <laughs> they all get like I, I again like. I spend a lot of time playing basketball. We would travel a bunch. We'd be in like cars driving up and down Southern California. We'd be in hotels for tournaments and different things like that. So yeah, did I like wear out the above the rim CD? I did. All right, because that's that's the world in which we lived. But there are two documentaries that I think are the are the best basketball movies um hoop dreams and then i have a deep fondness for black magic which is very little seen it was put out by espn um and it's about how historically black colleges basically changed basketball and the way basketball is played in this country from the the sort of adolf rupp university of kentucky kentucky all white basketball to these historically black colleges that started to just beat the brakes off of these big schools because they were playing a different brand of basketball. Um, and it's, and they, they literally changed basketball. Um, so as a sort of basketball history lover, it, it does an amazing job of telling that story. Now for like fictional narratives that involve basketball, I love white men can't jump again. This is nineties preference. Then we go love and basketball. Then we go, he got game. Which, oh, by the way, um, features a sort of one-on-one scene as a sort of climactic moment. And Spike Lee was one of the producers on Love and Basketball. There's some nice synergy there. Yeah, uh, got it. Fast Break, which is a 1970s movie with Gabe Kaplan, is a great movie. You should watch that. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, another 1970s movie with um, that is um, amazing. Bernard I'm King's so lost right now. Then we go back. <laughs> To above the rim. I feel like the fish that saved Pittsburgh is a movie title that was made up as part of a sitcom joke somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> like it seems it's like a, a reference movie. from a Simpsons throwaway joke. You should watch it. Okay. Um, above the rim is there because Tupac is in it, and that was that, we watched that movie all the time. Um, and then Hoosiers is is doesn't get a list, doesn't get on the list because I've I nurtured myself in that movie. I've watched that movie probably a hundred times. I, I still love it, though it's disqualified from the list because um, it's mostly racist. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> that's a good reason. So, so it gets disqualified. So I, I still harbor some deep affection for it. But if you want to, like, go and find on the Internet Spike Lee's uh, <laughs> Spike Lee's critique of Hoosiers yeah. basketball books, you should read um David Halberstam's Breaks of the Game is probably the best basketball book. That's a great, it's a great book. It's, um, it's about the Portland Trailblazers in the late 1970s. It's incredible. I don't, I don't know how this list could possibly be valid without Space Jam on it. Space, oh, Space and they trash. the music from Space Come on. Yeah, Space Jam's trash. Okay. I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> go watch it again. Go watch it again. I'm gonna pull you know who likes Space, Space Jam? Jam like, you're you're supposed to like Space Jam because Michael Jordan's in it. But look, the people who like Space Jam are the people who wear like Looney Tunes Letterman jackets. You ever seen these people <laughs> who are, like hanging out out in the world who like who go to like who go to Disneyland and buy a Letterman's jacket? That's a that's an interesting fashion choice that I do not agree with. I just want you to know that Space Jam soundtrack I think is available on vinyl. So 
Oh my! Oh no! I know! I know what I'm getting Adam for his birthday now. All right, I'm gonna spend that. <laughs> so let's move on. We before we do, we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. Catherine Reckless uh, recently wrote uh, an article on Marie Kondo and the, and her show on Netflix. It's really good, and there's lots to mine with this phenomenon of um, the the um, this condo method of um, condo Marie or condo method of of getting rid of all your stuff. Um, and Catherine does a really good job of lifting up a lot of interesting points on the show. Go check it out. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Century. Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free child magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Also, go and buy my book. It's called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. It's um, out, and uh, it's actually gotten some good reviews so far. So if you don't trust me but trust other impartial readers, uh, they seem to like it. So go to your local bookstore, buy the book. All right, Adam and Aisha, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for this upcoming Sunday, which is February 24th, the seventh Sunday in Epiphany. We have Joseph and his reconciliation with his brothers. We have Paul's discussion about life and death in 1 Corinthians. And we have Christ's commandment to love your enemies in Luke. Aisha, as you look through these texts, what is intersecting for you with love and basketball? Man, I am such a fan of Joseph's story as a great uh, family systems case study. Um, and the the tears and the confrontation um, for Joseph having to reveal who he is to his brothers, because it's so much drama. It's like just leading up to um, the punchline of what you meant for evil, God meant for good. All of this takes you through the drama of him having to make sense of the fact that he's been missing this love from his life in light of everything he's been through. I mean, at this point in his life, when he has to confront his siblings, he's, you know, he's lived a whole life and he's come out on top. He's living his best life. He's probably got post-it notes and mantras like, I'm better without them. I'm out <laughs> here in these streets. You know, I was from the bottom, but now we're here. Like, he's, he's moved past it. But seeing them and interacting with them takes him all the way back to being a little kid before he got sold into slavery and missing his family. And so when I think about that scene where where Q and Monica are on the court and she loses the game and she goes to walk away and he's like, come on, double or nothing. And they kiss. Mm. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think she starts crying in that scene. There's like this weeping and this embrace because the truth of the matter is, and what she says is like, I've loved you and basketball together. And I, like, I can't unhinge that. And so there's something about Joseph, even though all of these wonderful things, like God has brought him such a mighty long way, right? That he still can't forget the fact that he misses his family. And he loves them. And so he's willing to go through all the drama and all the heartbreak just to just to a, reconnect with them and also to see his daddy. So this idea that like even when you've healed or moved on or you think you're OK, that sometimes you may have to go back and really unearth what do you really love? What needs to be reconciled? What is able to be redeemed? And this is a relationship that is redeemable, no different than with um, with. Q and Monica, that there was some redemption that was possible 
and this long love relationship that they have in the romantic sense. And for, for Joseph and his brothers, they're, they're tied together forever, you know? So I really, so when I was looking at that scene, I'm, so I'm watching the movie again with the text, like scrolling through and I'm highlighting, I'm like, oh my goodness. So yeah, so I, I just feel like you can't, again, you can't help who you love, even when they've hurt you. And that, I mean, that's, this storyline, I'm always fascinated every time I read it and I reread it about um, how you just have to keep unpacking your relationships and the connectivity. And I think that deep, deep down as humans, as Christians, we want to know that things can be reconciled. So, and I think I, w- I once heard Bob Dykstra say, shout outs to Bobby D. Um, he said one of the central desires of all humans is that we want to be loved by the one that we love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the central question of this movie is, can we, can we be good at the things we love without being loved by the ones we love? Right. Right. Like, right. and, and that's at the end of the movie, there are two people who have sort of lost their love for basketball. And the movie seems to suggest that that's in part because they've, they've fallen out of love or the, the relationship is, has been broken between each other. And that actually the reparation of the relationship will actually stoke this love of basketball again. It does within uh, Monica. We don't actually know if it does within Quincy, which is a really interesting choice, but um, can we become who we are supposed to become without the love of others? And, and what happens when the game the dream actually doesn't support you because the yeah. dream doesn't love you. Well, I think only people love you, right? Like, and you need people to support you in pursuit of the dream. And so it's really interesting when, when you talk about the Joseph story, these, these dreams that he has, they're Ooh. always sort of weird, like wheat bending, like, um, like various different, and they don't have people. But they're about people. Yeah. They're about people and how people are going to react to the circumstances of the world. Um, and so I, I think about Joseph, too, and the sort of ambition that he has had. Um, but it doesn't mean much if you can't share it with anyone. Or with the people that you love the most. Like, how many how many times, you know, because when I, again, I add my own imagination, but when he's coming out of dark places, when he, you know, has a new family, when he's saving, you know, a whole community, right? Because like the gift that gets him sold into slavery is the gift that elevates him. And so, so he's got all of these kind of weird both hands in his life, but how many nights did he go to bed wondering if his father was alive or wishing he could just, you know, talk to his brothers or, or ask them, why did you do that? Like they, it's just, it just reminds me of that kind of unresolved thing. And even thinking about, um, Quincy talking to his dad, like, how, you know, how come you couldn't love? Like, how come you couldn't be the dad I needed you to be kind of thing, you know? So, I, you know, I think that we just have, we have those, those desires. We, we do want to be loved. Now, I think even looking at the movie, we don't know if that father-son relationship is ever reconciled. But we do know that he's kind of putting his best foot forward with his wife and his child. And I, I think whether he goes into basketball or not, like in, it was thinking about the movie, if it continued, I would probably argue that there was probably more joy in him just being a dad 
and being able to try like dad 2.0 where his father may have failed as opposed to you know his it chasing the dream of basketball because i think his real dream was being a family man yeah well i think i mean as you said earlier this is why i think that the, the question of what q wants is so critical here uh, and, and and i i think what i'm coming around to is that for a very long time he doesn't know that, that he he mm-hmm. plays basketball because he's he, and he enjoys it and he's he's clearly gifted at it and it's clearly the context on the road that is put in front of him but he never has the opportunity to ask is is this really the thing that that I love is this really who I am and I and I think that is the question that kind of finally gets gets prompted in the second half in the back half of the film mm-hmm. um and and it's one of the things that that allows him to the contentment I mean the mm. obvious joy and contentment of sitting on the sidelines in that closing moment and having his son in his hands and watching his wife play I mean there's you know, he comes from watching her from the very back row all through the movie to watching her in the very front row. And there's there's something... I think it was a girl, too, by the way. Is it a girl? Okay. There's something really joyful about that and and just glad about it that I think is 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 not present for him until until we get that, to that moment. Mm-hmm. Which I think, as as I think about this Joseph story, there's there's another through line that's maybe worth pursuing, which is... Monica and Q live in this sort of this hard in between place for for most of their existence, right? They they are are black and middle class. They are um they are basketball players, but they're also trying to sort of pursue some dreams. Monica especially is like there are these moments where she's in a foreign country, doesn't speak the language, right? Doesn't oh, understand yeah. everything, doesn't like she she has a Joseph story kind of in her. She's in this new place and doesn't sit well. Um, The thing that's been striking to me about Joseph lately, as I think, think about him is that like Joseph has an Egyptian wife. Like he has two kids that are Hebrew and Egyptian. Yep. He has an Egyptian name that they call him. He lives this like Egyptian Hebrew world and it has to sort of meld in him. And all of the success in Egypt has not fixed all of the problems in the land of Canaan. And, Mm -hmm. and so he lives in this sort of like bifurcated, like bisected way that I've seen some of that. I see that theme sort of weaving through the movie at different times where people feel like they're, they're kind of, they're kind of split in two, not knowing which side they should they should pursue. Who are they? You know, even watching Monica like do a desk job or like try and walk in heels or something like that. that there are these, these little moments where she 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 feels like oh, now I'm trying to live into this new identity, but don't fit right, and this older identity wasn't fulfilling, and what's going on? So I feel like there's some of that in the Joseph story too, which is that he's he himself is a margin walker. Yep. Yeah, you know, so he's he's kind of always on the edge trying to figure out and like how how do you take these two identities and and make them um, cohesive? And I think one way of being cohesive is is identifying your triggers. Like when Monica has to watch the you know clearly aloof fiance deal with Q in the hospital. Nineteen ninety Sarah Banks. 1990s style of banks, right? And just like quintessential, like, 
bougie girlfriend who's like, oh, who are you? Because I'm gonna marry him with the with the you know ring in her face. I had to be all triggery, right? And so the only way to make sense of that tension when you, as you say, when you're a margin walker, is to say what what's going on underneath the surface for me. I always um, quote a lot uh, Pete Scazzera's uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Leader and Emotionally Healthy Church. And he always asks, um, asks the question for you know leaders, what's underneath the surface, right? What are you sad about? What are you mad about? What are you scared about? What are you glad about? What's going on kind of with the iceberg? And so for her, if you're going to walk on this margin, you're going to make sense of who you are. You have to ask what's happening underneath. And the reality is the shoes didn't fit. The desk was clunky and watching her who, you know, this guy that she's in love with her whole life, watching that on the sidelines, like that's, that doesn't work. You know, I mean, even with Joseph's story, he could have absolutely let his brothers come into town and leave town and been done with it. But he was asking the question of what's, what is triggering me right now? What's going on underneath? And I think that's where, that's how you live in the tension of being a margin walker is you mm. got to go underneath and go beneath the surface of what's happened with you emotionally, spiritually, even physically, psychologically, like all of the components of who you are as a human being, you've got to go beneath the surface. And so I think for him, he's dealing with his triggers and he's going underneath the, underneath the surface. Matt, what about you? As you read those different lectionary passages, what's standing out to you? Um, a couple of quick things. Uh, the, the, not sure that either one of them would 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 make for a sustainable love and basketball preaching illustration, but there are certainly like connection points that jump for me. One is just uh, is is Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians about what resurrection looks like, and he's he's this is a notoriously complicated passage about the 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 the, the bodies that will raise are not quite the same as the <laughs> bodies the that go the into world. the ground and. Um, yeah, it feels like he's been he's been doing a shot for every chapter, and by the time he gets to the end of the letter, it's a little. But uh, I I think one of the interesting things here is that, in so in, in, by having this conversation, Paul's reinforcing just the very importance of of bodies in the first place for the folks that are trying to figure out what this early church likes, what this early church is like, and what this what what this um, messianic thing is supposed to mean, and. Uh, and so I, I think about that in the Adam in the context of some of your earlier comments about just the 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 bodily presence in this movie and the way in which um, this movie has that deep kind of physicality to it uh, that I think Christianity has been rightfully accused of forgetting many many moments during its history and 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 this passage can can be wielded in various ways towards that but I, I do feel like. There's a reminder of yeah, this 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 thing hinges on bodies in some way, and we have to be able to hold to that. The other is, uh, I mean, uh, this is the second half of Luke's sermon on the plain, uh, and where Jesus says, "Love your enemies." And I imagine a lot of preachers will try to be figuring out what to do with with those challenging words on Sunday. Um, it occurs to me that love and basketball is hardly the first piece of fiction or piece of literature that has used the trope of the folks who uh, pretend to hate each other but actually are in love with each other. Uh, obviously, it doesn't, doesn't, just at the very beginning of this film, we get a little bit of, you know, the, the rivals who are secretly in love. Um, we've seen that many, many, many other times in literature, and I, and, and I, and I wonder about that lens. Um, 
I, I wonder about, I mean, it, obviously it makes for great storytelling. Um, and I, I guess I worry a little bit about it as a preaching lens for that text to where it, if, if we, if we get to the point where we say, well, the folks that really, the, probably your enemies are the people that you're secretly in love with, um, <laughs> ends, ends up not being a super helpful way of getting at that. And so I'm, I'm trying to live into the challenge of that, um, that there are people or that, that, that we could have enemies that we properly just for whom there actually is no romantic spark, right? <laughs> um, yeah. that, that we're still called to figure out how to love. It might not be a romantic spark, but there's this idea that sometimes people are so angry because deep down they, they, they are drawn and they don't know why, right? They're drawn, they're intrigued, they want to know more, but they're embarrassed by the attraction or the draw or the intrigue or the curiosity. And instead of taking the time to learn and to connect, there's the, there's a wall put up or the or the hatred put up um, that's really unnecessary because it's how do I, I really want to connect with this other human but I'm too afraid to be vulnerable to do so so I mean at, when I look at this Luke stuff you know it's it's love but it's also it's it's a call for vulnerability right and so in this movie in order to get to the next level in order to grow in order to go deeper there has to be a sense of vulnerability so even with you know, with Quincy's character, we know he grew and was vulnerable with his, with his, you know, future wife, but we don't know if he was ever vulnerable with his dad. And so what does it take to be a full and complete person? Vulnerability, which is, I think, the first step to forgiveness, to seeing people who are not like you, to making sense of, you know, one of my English teachers would say, you know, it's the same energy, like love and hate as like the same root, the same fire. You know, the same fire that it takes to love somebody, the same fire it takes to hate somebody. So what what does it take to step to step back and, and to make sense of why is this fire this way towards this person? Or more, I think in this text is those people. I think the group hatred and the group vilification is way much more in this culture right now than anything else. I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, Aisha, thank you for being here. We love having you on the show. It'll be sooner rather than later when you come back, right? Yes, it will. Thanks for having me. This was great. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Um, my postlude is very quick. It goes like this. Russian Doll on Netflix is really good, and everybody should watch it. All right. <laughs> have you watched it? <laughs> No, I haven't. I've been meaning to. All right. So Russian Doll is amazing. Uh, it's some of the best television I've seen in a long time. Uh, Natasha Leone plays a woman who keeps reliving her 36th birthday party over and over and over again. And then inevitably sometime in the next day or so dies in some weirdly tragic way and then wakes back up at her party. So why is she stuck here? What has prompted this break? What is the cosmology that we are living in? This, is, this movie has got a little bit of Groundhog Day. It's very kind of... Uh, hipster New York movie, too. It's got a Groundhog Day plus, like, a modern Sex in the City vibe with a real healthy dose of trauma uh, because part of what's happening is that she's having to figure out what is what is going on deep inside her that is kind of bending space-time in the way that it is. This movie is getting a lot of praise. All of it is well-earned. 
I want to lift up that one of the things that makes this makes this work is that it is eight tight half hour episodes. Uh, sometimes Netflix makes really good television. Sometimes make Netflix makes thirteen episodes of television that could be six episodes of television. Ooh, yes, and all of their Marvel stuff. Yeah, and sometimes Netflix drags, and not this man. This this is eight tight episodes. It is exactly as long as it needs to be. A reminder to preachers: don't preach thirteen episodes if eight will do just fine. <laughs> That's my postlude, Adam. Okay, so here's my postlude. I recently decided that. In order to do ministry in Philadelphia, I should know something about Philadelphia. And so I am doing my own city research, which is I'm reading all sorts of books about the city of Philadelphia and about the various different stories that are very Philadelphia centered. And I have found this to be, number one, really fascinating. Um, But number two, it has provided all sorts of interesting ways to not just think about how to do ministry in this place, but how to integrate city stories, local stories, local history into preaching in a way that I find to be sort of very grounded and and earth-centered. It's it's very local. And so I, I want to encourage people to buy three or four books about your city or about your region and just read them for the larger purpose of understanding that. And I'm fairly confident that in the midst of that, it will spark some inspiration. It, it is for me right now. And, um, and I'm really into it. So um, for, for instance, for um, the city of Philadelphia stuff that I'm reading, I'm reading a book called third in Indiana by Steve Lopez, let it burn, which is about the move um, bombing in Philadelphia by Michael Boyette and Randy Boyette. Um, There's a Buzz Bissinger book that I have. I'm reading about the Mutter Museum, which is about the sort of early surgery that happened in, that was taking place in, by this like strange doctor in Philadelphia. It's, um, it's all super fascinating and it's interesting to see where all of these books intersect and depart and how they can tell different stories about the same place. So I encourage everyone, go read some books about the city or region that you live in. That's my postlude. Cool. Awesome. That about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Clippers for Life. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. The Monstars? Are you kidding me?